Hey, today we're in part three of our series that we've been in for the uh, last three weeks uh, called Seven. And today we're talking about the third church in the seven churches that John writes about in Revelation that Jesus talks to. And last week we talked about the, the church at Smyrna. And we talked about how that church suffered, and, and part of the comfort that we have in suffering is choosing hope. Today we're going to talk about the church at Pergamum, and they're a whole different situation. In fact, they're known as the compromising church. Charles Spurgeon, uh, one of the great uh, theologians, uh, once said, It is no trifling thing to be a church member. He says this, I could earnestly wish that certain professors of Christ had never been members of the church at all. Their conduct outside the church might be tolerated because they don't know any better, but once they learn that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and yet they still do not abide by His Word or His Spirit, this is the state of those who are not Christians but say they are. He's talking about hypocrites, isn't he? It's always heartbreaking to hear about a Christian who has had some sort of moral failure, a Christian leader especially that's had some, some major moral failure, public failure even. But even more heartbreaking and disappointing are the times where those who claim to follow Jesus compromise themselves in the truth of God and the truth of God's word, and they actively continue in that compromise without any regard for the effect that it has on their Christianity or the, or the view of Christianity around the world. Brendan Manning, one of the uh, great authors, he wrote a great book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. I'd encourage you to, to read it. He, he said this, The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is this. Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but walk out the, door, out the door and deny Him with their lifestyle. And he says, he says, that's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The people who profess to be Christians would, by their actions, tell the world that they're not Christians. It's, you know, it's, it's always difficult when you see people that, that act, say one thing and then act another way. We, we typically disregard those people. We try and avoid those people at all costs, really. And it's even more disappointing when we find those people in the church because whether you realize it or not, the world, the perception of Christianity is based on how Christians act. Uh, what was it that Gandhi said one time? He said, I like your Jesus. It's his followers I don't like so much. I mean, there's some truth in that sometimes. Is that, that people, the perception of Christianity is, is absolutely based off of how people act. Most of you probably are familiar with the Jim Jones story. And this might be one of the best examples of this. In 1978, Jim Jones, who was an ordained minister, people oftentimes forget that part or we try and at least overlook that part, took his congregation from California to Jonestown, Guyana. When U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan had heard about some of the things that were going on down there, he flew out to uh, Africa and tried to, to at least investigate. And while he was there, there were at least four people that said, hey, we want to get out of here as quickly as possible. And so as they were leaving, he tried to take four people with him. Jim Jones got word of what was happening, and he sent somebody to the airport to attack him. And he killed uh, this U.S. congressman and several other people. Now, Jones, once he realized the gravity of murdering a U.S. congressman, implemented a pre-rehearsed death pact. He laced fruit punch with cyanide, and 914 people were killed. That's astounding to me. There have been all kinds of movies and documentaries and Netflix specials and all that kind of stuff about Jonestown. And 
There's one movie that, that was uh, made that has a scene that is particularly disturbing. Because in, in, in this scene that I, I'm getting ready to tell you about, it, it happens before Jim Jones takes his congregation to, to South Africa, to Guyana. He's actually there in Indianapolis, and he holds up a Bible in this scene that's being reenacted, and he says, is this the word of God? And the congregation says, yes. He says, is this the word that you follow? And the congregation says, yes. And then he does something completely unbelievable. He takes it, and he throws it down, and he stomps on it. And he says, from this day on, you listen to my voice and to my words. Now, you hear that, and as Christians, that ought to make us mad, like that someone would just blatantly blaspheme God in that way, that nobody would stand up and do anything. I can tell you, if I ever tried to pull something like that in a sermon, <laughs> it, it would be comical just to see what would happen. I guarantee you, I wouldn't finish the sermon. It, it would be over when that happened. I can just tell you, that's what would happen. I have that confidence in our leadership. But, but it also confuses us. It confuses us and says, how could anybody who professes to be a Christian, who's, who is a Christian, think that someone standing up and doing that would be okay and say, yeah, you know what, forget God, I think I'll just follow Jim Jones from here on out. Like, where in the, your mind does that make sense? Here's the thing is that once, once you have forsaken God's Word, you've forsaken the one who gave it. And that's pretty much what is happening with the church in Pergamum. Today we're looking at a church who had to be confronted because of their compromise with the world. And so Jesus, he speaks to this church and he brings three types of words. He first brings words of consideration and then words of confrontation and then words of consolation. And so let's talk about the, the first one here, the words of consideration. Verse 12, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. If you've, if you've got your Bibles with you or the words are on the screen. Jesus says this, he says, To the angel of the church of Pergamum, right, these are the words of him who, who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we started, we talked about the church at Ephesus, and Pergamum is the opposite of Ephesus. I'm going to get really tongue-twisted trying to say Pergamum a bunch of times. But, but Pergamum is the opposite of Ephesus. In Ephesus, we saw that they did not tolerate wicked men. They, Jesus says, you've lost your love, your first love, and that's what I hold against you. But Pergamum, they, they had not lost their love for Jesus. They just hadn't lost their love for anything else either. They, they tolerated wicked men and, and everything else that came with that. They were like seeds planted in thorns, and their inability to weed out their desire for other things just choked out the light of Jesus that they were trying to, to, to display for other people. They're, they had a, an affection for false teaching and immorality, and so it just choked out Jesus. Jesus tells them that his words are like a sharp, double-edged sword. Think about that for just a second, a, a sharp, double-edged sword. Imagine you're out in, in the forest or maybe a bush, a, a, a thick bush or something, and you're, you're trying to walk through that. Um, any of you watch those survivor shows like um, Dual Survivor or there are other ones that, you know, one of the things that they always bring with them is a machete. And, and that's a useful tool because it clears the way for them. If you've got a sharp double-edged machete or sword that you can just swipe one way and swipe the other way and every time it's cutting, it's clearing a path for you, it's hindering what's holding you back, that would be very helpful, wouldn't it? The writer of Hebrews describes God's word this way. He says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of heart. That's what the word of God does for us. It clears the way for us. It's a double-edged sword. 
It's so sharp that it can divide your sin away from you and force you to, to look at it. And since it's got two, two edges, you can't escape it. Left or right, it gets you. If you hear it with a hard heart, it, it condemns you. If you hear it with an open heart, it convicts you. But Jesus doesn't just say things for the sake of saying things. He takes all things into consideration, and then he says this, verse 13. Pay attention to this. He says, I know where you live. Notice this. Satan has his throne. He says, you live in Satan's throne. That's where you're living at. And I think he's talking physically. This, is, this city is so bad. He says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. Notice, again, where Satan lives. As far as sin goes, the city of Pergamum was, was the worst city for a Christian to live in. In our country, we've got nicknames for different cities. You know, Chicago's the Windy City. Um, there are others, but what's, what's Las Vegas? Sin City. So that's kind of, think that picture. Nothing is off limits there. And, and that's really what it was in Pergamum. Because wherever, wherever Satan lives, there's going to be sin. There's going to be temptation. There's going to be persecution. And Jesus says, I'm taking that into consideration. I understand where you live and where you live is not good. There are, there are things that, that are going to cause you to stumble here because of just where you're at. Look, if Jesus notices all the advantages in where we live, he'll also notice all the disadvantages that we have in where we live as well. We don't have to look up to the, to the heavens and say, you know, hey, Jesus, why have you put me here? Look at what I'm going through because of where I live or, or the people that are around me. No, Jesus already knows that, and he's taken that into consideration. He says he considers the fact that Pergamum is sharing space with the devil, and he commends them for their loyalty in spite of that. They weren't ashamed to be called Christians. In fact, considering the circumstances, it's pretty amazing that they didn't renounce their faith. Uh, their, their friend Antipas, who, who many believe was the preacher at the church in Pergamum, he, he's martyred there. And tradition says that he was roasted alive in a, in a giant bronze kettle. Imagine witnessing something like that. And saying, alright, if you don't renounce your faith, you're next. I mean, that would cause people to kind of take a step back and go, okay, maybe... Maybe I'll tone down the faith talk a little bit. I'll just be a, a, maybe a Christian in secret. You know, even today, Christians have to remain true in the midst of idolatry and immorality and satanic fas fascination. But this is a real war with real consequences. Pergamum lived where Satan had his throne. And, and you could make the case that we do too. Maybe not here in Glendale, but in our country I mean, you just look around. There, there are monuments to evil everywhere. Uh, we celebrate evil and immorality in the name of tolerance as, as to not offend anyone. And, and this is my opinion, my opinion only. We as a country, as a people, as a culture, have gotten so bent on being politically correct so that we don't hurt anybody's feelings. And we've just disregarded all morality. If you live an immoral lifestyle or, or you've got, and, and I'm not talking about any certain thing, okay? There's a broad scope of things, so don't think I'm just pigeonholing one thing. I'm talking about a broad scope of things. But we say, all right, we, we don't want to offend those people. So we just, we, we, we can't call sin sin anymore. We're, we are celebrating evil and immorality. 
I'm going to sound old-fashioned here, and that's okay. And, and if you know me, you know this, this is not me jonesing for the good old days. I'm not the, the typical guy that looks back and says, oh, man, it was so much better, you know, then. You know, I, I'm not old enough to remember good old days, right? But, but this just an observation. We used to be ashamed of public sin. We used to be at least embarrassed or ashamed of the thought that maybe our private sin might become public. And so we, we were fearful that that would become you know, somebody else's knowledge. It was kind of like, you know, if your spouse was stepping out, out in their marriage, for that information to become public would have been humiliating for, for both people. But now it's so familiar in our culture and in our marriages that people are unfazed by it. If you hear somebody add an affair on their spouse, you're like, oh, well, add them to the list, right? It's not a big deal anymore. And it's, and it's not just that one specific thing. We have seemingly lost all of our decency, and we have no shame when it comes to decency at all anymore. And, and again, it's everywhere. It's not just one specific issue. It's, it's a whole gamut of issues. Take a look at our entertainment business. Movies today that are supposed to be family-friendly are anything but. It used to be scandalous for a TV show to have a script with, with a curse word in it, or at least more than one. I mean, that was you never heard that. Now on network TV, there are only one or two words that are off limits. And if it's not network TV, I mean, nothing's off limits. But it's just not language. I mean, it's just not the, those kind of things. It's the themes and the concepts. One of the most popular TV shows in the last decade was, was the show Breaking Bad. You know, if you didn't see that show, here's what it was basically about. It was glorifying, using, making, uh, the glorification of using, making, and selling meth. <laughs> That's just what certain parts in people, uh, people in Kentucky need to see, right? There was another TV show called Lucifer that was really popular. It depicts Satan as just a, a simply a misunderstood guy uh, who had a bad reputation. And he's bored with living in hell, so he's going to take up residence in L.A. and start a nightclub. And the show was widely popular. But none of that surprises you when you live where Satan has his throne. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, The God of this age, this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The devil is the God of this age or the God of this world. And those who refuse to make Jesus their Lord and their Savior, they make Satan their Lord by default. I mean, you can, even if they don't believe in Satan, if they don't believe in anything, they are choosing Satan. There, there's two choices that you have, to, or one choice you have to make in life. You're either going to choose to follow Jesus or you're not going to. And if you choose not to follow Jesus, by default, you are choosing to follow Satan. And people say, no, 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 I don't believe in any of that stuff. Well, that's fine. You don't have to right now. But there will come a day when you will believe in it. And you will wish that you had chosen to follow Jesus. But as long as we live where Satan lives, look, this world isn't big enough for the both of us, right? There, should, there will always be, and there should be, conflict between the church and evil, between Christians and Satan. Paul says this in Ephesians. He says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So notice that. He says, other, other people aren't your enemies. That's what he's saying here. Non-believers aren't your enemies here. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Other denominational groups, they're not your enemy." but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. He's saying Satan is the enemy. And in Pergamum, 
it was more fluent there than maybe anywhere else. Emperor worship was, was chief there in Pergamum. It was worse there than it was in Smyrna. Uh, the Roman Empire, they didn't really care what religion you, you were. They didn't care if you were Christian. They didn't care if you believed in all the Greek gods. As long as you worshipped the emperor. That's really all they cared about. And there, you would die if you refused to worship the emperor. If you didn't worship the Greek gods, it was okay. But, but it was deadly if you didn't worship Caesar. Jonathan Kahn, author of excuse me, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Harbinger, he makes a compelling case that this throne of Satan that, that, that is mentioned in, in this passage in Revelation that's found in Pergamum was actually the altar that was built for the Greek god Zeus. It was actually an altar for him, and, and, and it's called the, the, the throne of Satan. And here's something really interesting that I found about this. The throne of Satan, or the altar of Zeus, um, it was later built and adopted and rebuilt by a German architect named Albert Speer in 1934 at the request of one man. Any guess on who that one man was? Yeah, Adolf Hitler. He would stand upon that throne, that altar, and pronounce the final solution, referring to the destruction of the Jews. Here's another interesting note, that, and this is, I'll say coincidental, but maybe more than that. The same year that this throne of Satan was reconstructed was the same year that Hitler was born in 1889. Hmm. Satan, or Hitler, maybe not a whole lot of difference. Hitler stands on this throne and announces death to an entire group of people. And here's the thing that we have to just understand and know that death is the only thing that is ever pronounced from the throne of Satan. Death is the only thing that will ever be pronounced there. There's no reason to compromise with it. If you play too close to the edge, you will eventually fall in. This is why Jesus follows his words of consideration. He's saying, I understand where you live, but now I'm going to talk to you about what you've got to do about it. So there's some words of confrontation. Verses 14 and 15, he says, Nevertheless, I've got a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you, have also, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, it wasn't just the, them allowing the teaching of, of Balaam and the, and the teaching of the Nicolaitans that, that Jesus is upset with. They were essentially just turning a blind eye to immorality to false teaching, to, to sexual sins that were going on inside of their own house. Not just in the culture that they lived in, but inside their own house. They're like, look, you, if you're a Christian, act like it is basically what they're saying here. Quit acting like the rest of the world. It, it boggles my mind that we always expect the rest of the world to act like Christians when the Christians so much want to act like the rest of the world. We ought to flip that, don't we think? That the rest of the world, we, we, we don't expect the rest of the world to act like Christians, but Christians ought to act like Christians. And maybe if we act like Christians enough, the rest of the world will take notice. Balak is mentioned here. He's a Moabite king that hated Israel. And so he hired a prophet, uh, Balaam, to curse Israel. And none of his curses would work if you can read about this in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, every time Balaam would curse Israel, uh, Israel would be blessed instead. And so Balaam goes back to the king and he says, look, I, I, I can't do it. In fact, um, if you really want to curse Israel, you're going to have to do something better. You have to use somebody better than me. In fact, here's what you should do. You should teach the women of your country to seduce the men of Israel to marry them. And then the men will begin to follow the pagan gods of their pagan wives. And you know what happened? That's exactly what happened because men are stupid, right? Right? Like, I, thought there would, I thought there would be some women that would amen that. Um, 
But his idea worked. He said, put a bunch of pretty women out there and the men will follow. And they did. And as a result, Balaam effectively made something once pure, impure. Look, there's a subtle deception that is lurking out there to embrace the values of the world more than the values of God. A deception to stop listening to an old, outdated book and start listening to enlightened minds and eloquent mouths that are, that are woke, so to speak. A deception that says the church must embrace the world to get along with the world. A deception that says that the church must be like the world to win the world. And if it doesn't, then the church will abandon and lose members and will become irrelevant. My opinion, again, my opinion only is that the church has tried that and it's already irrelevant. And it should be irrelevant when it forsakes the truth of Scripture to become like the, like the world. Clyde Killow wrote, the evidence is weighty and undeniable. He says, Western Christian religion, Western, notice that, Western Christian religion is crumbling. Its authority and its influence is fading. Its adherents are disengaging. The erosion started slowly, but it has picked up steam. Christianity as we know it is becoming irrelevant. And you want to know why? Because Christians for too long have acted like the world. We didn't act like Christians. And so all our pagan friends said, what's the difference between you and me? Nothing, except you have to get up early on Sunday mornings. That's what they saw the difference. They said, we don't have to live like that. And so they haven't. It's no secret that according to research, the evidence is it's overwhelming that Western Christianity is in decline. There was an MIT study of those who had no religious preferences in 1990, and they said that it doubled in 2010. It was called the Rise of the Nuns. The, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S. They, they had no religious preference. The, the question isn't, is Western Christianity in decline? The question is, why? It seems that from the beginning of the church, man has constantly tried to alter the church, you know, to make it better, <laughs> as if Jesus needed our help to improve His church. To think that we can make His church better is arrogant and presumptuous. If it worked for the apostles in Acts, it will work today. My fav- one of my favorite passages of Scripture found in Acts where, where it's just a, a, an observation about the disciples. It says, these men have turned the world upside down. You know why? Because they were followers of Jesus and they acted like it. If it worked for them, it will work for us. We have tried to reinvent and reinvent and reinvent the church by making one concession after another with the world, so much that it's often difficult to tell the difference between a Christian and a non-believer. And everyone's wondering why Spurgeon said, the very church that the world likes best is sure to be what God despises. Hmm. And, and let me be clear here. I'm not talking about methods. I'm not talking about style of worship, um, whether you know what you wear as a, as a preacher, I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm talking about what we believe, and then how we act as a, as a result. Look, worldliness cannot win people to Jesus. Worldliness will not win people to Jesus. It is the duty of the church. It is not the duty, I should say, of the church to reflect the world. It is the duty of the church to reflect Jesus. How wrong-headed is it to think that we can outworld the world to win the world? To Jesus. The world, the, the, this worldly church in Pergamum, it was confronted with a choice. You can repent or you can have Christ declare war on it. Because compromise ultimately leads to judgment. Compromise in some things is good, right? Compromise in politics is probably a good thing. Compromise in your marriage from time to time is a good thing. For the sake of not sleeping on couches, right? Compromise in the church is never good. Compromising the church always leads to judgment. Jesus says, 
in verse 16, he says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and, and you will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. They were told, change your attitude. Change your ways. Change your lifestyle. Quit allowing sinful practices to go on in your church. And if you're not going to do this, you're going to make an enemy out of Jesus. That's what he says. Jesus would make them his enemy as well if you're not going to make Jesus' enemy the enemy. It's kind of that thing, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? We've heard that. Well, Jesus says, if you're not a friend of mine, you're an enemy of mine. And that goes for churches too. If you're not a friend of Jesus, guess what? Your church is an enemy of Jesus. And if it continues, Jesus promised, he says, to fight against them by, by, by himself with his word, with this double-edged sword. There, there's a reason that the word for the church that, that's used in the New Testament or congregation is the word ecclesia. It, it means called out or separated from. There, there's a reason why we're told not to conform to the patterns of this world. You know, that, you know why we, we're told that? It's not to keep us from enjoying all of the things that life has to give. It's not so that we're seen as prudes and stick in mud and have no fun and any of that kind of stuff. It's not for any of that. It's not to keep us from enjoying life. It's, in, it's intended to keep us from death. That's why he ends his, his confrontation with consolation. Jesus says in verses 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, or in other words, to him who repents, to him who changes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. As our relationship with Christ matures, our interest in the world should become less and less. As our love for Christ increases, our love for the world decreases. And, and the church of Pergamon, if they were to repent and to overcome in the end, they would receive this hidden manna that had been put in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Jesus said, he was the bread of life. And so it's kind of a metaphor there. I'm going to give you more of me. And that's going to be all that you need, right? I'm, I'm going to fulfill all of your needs because you're going to have me, and that's what you need. And then he, he says this. He says, I'm going to put a, give you a, a white stone with a new name written on it. This is the verse that uh, inspired that, that great old hymn, A New Name Written Down in Glory. You all know that one? That, yeah, this is the verse that inspired that, that, that uh, hymn. Jesus promises to give us a, a white stone with a new name written on it. Now, that, that white stone, it's been open for interpretation, but the one explanation that makes the most sense to me is the fact that it was the custom of the courts in those days that, to give a white stone to somebody who was acquitted of a crime. You were accused of a crime, you went to trial, you were found not guilty, you were given this white stone. And, and most people note that their names were not written on this stone, which to me makes this explanation all the more plausible. Christ would write a new name on it. A new name in glory because he's found you not guilty. He's paid the price for your sins. He's, made, he's justified you in front of the judge, in front of the Father, in front of God. And now you're not guilty. So guess what? You get a new name and a new stone that says, hey, you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's also interestingly appropriate, I think, that the name Pergamum or Pergamos is derived from, from the Greek word gamos, which means marriage. Because this church, it seemed to be married more to the world than to Jesus. The church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. But too often, the bride of Christ has stepped out on the, on the bridegroom and had relationship with, with another bridegroom, the world. And that's, what, that's what's going on here in Pergamum. And that thinking persists today. There, there's a thinking that that goes kind of like this, that we can live in sin and die in Christ and go to heaven. 
It's okay. It's okay to be involved in all of these things like idolatry and sexual immorality. Just to ask for forgiveness before you die, right? Just, just you know, it's that I'm gonna, I'm gonna sin now and repent later mentality. I'm gonna tell you that doesn't cut it with Jesus. Paul confronts that thinking head on in Romans when he asks a very rhetorical question. He says, "Should we sin? Should we just keep on sinning so that grace would abound all the mo- all the more?" And he emphatically answers, "No, by all means, no." Here's the deal. There are times when we have blurred the lines between the world and between Christianity to the point that, including ourselves, no one can tell the difference. So we need to ask ourselves, take a a lesson from the church at Pergamum, and ask ourselves, are we married more to the world than to Jesus? Look, no matter whether you want to admit it or not, someone sits on the throne of your heart. Who has the throne of your heart? Who who has it? Because whoever sits on the throne of your heart determines your destiny. Who do you want to determine your destiny? I tell you, Satan promises nothing but death. And Jesus promises only life. And life more abundantly. There are two things that I want to challenge you with here as, as individually and then as a congregation. And it's just that very thing. As, a, as an individual... Who do you want determining your destiny? Jesus or Satan? Because you're going to make a choice. You're going to choose one or the other. You say, well, I don't pick either. Well, then you've made a choice. You've chosen Satan. That's, it's, it's that simple. You either choose Jesus or you choose Satan. It, that's, it's an A and B. There is no multiple choice or no C, no you know, above, answer all of the above, none of that, or another option. Jesus or Satan? As an individual, who do you want to follow? Jesus or Satan? Well, of course, we all say, well, we're here, right? We want to follow Jesus. Well, then act like it, right? Right? Me too, right? We gotta, if we're going to be Christians, we're Christians all the time. we got to act like it all the time. As a church, who do we want controlling our destiny? Who do we want to be the bride of? Do we want to be the bride of Christ or do we want to be the bride of Satan? One's going to lead us to life. One's going to lead us to, um, to better things. One's going to lead us to, to more people coming in and, and being a part of the kingdom of God. One's going to lead us to death. There is no other alternative. Life or death. Jesus or Satan. I'm reminded of the passage from Jeremiah. As for me and my house, we're going to choose the Lord. We're going to follow Him. And I believe that that would be what the answer of this church would say. If I were to ask all the elders right now, they would say, as for me and, as for me and our church, we're going to follow Jesus. So let's act like it. Our mission every week, right? To lead people to love and follow Jesus. I say that every single Sunday. Lead people to love and follow Jesus. If we're not leading people and to, to love and follow Jesus, then we're not on mission. But guess what? We cannot be on mission if we're not loving Jesus. And following Jesus. Our actions is the most important thing? No. But they do matter. And that's how the world's going to judge us. Is by our actions. And ultimately that's how God will judge us. By our actions. Have we done what we're supposed to do? Are we following Jesus? Or are we following Satan? Let me pray for you.